0: During this episode, we will be discussing violence against women, including sexual assault. Please listen with care.
1: So they were going to conquer our body, much like they were conquering the land, if you will, you know, that whole discovery exploration notion. So Native women or Indigenous particularly silenced deliberately the voices of Native American women, Indigenous women to reinforce you know the tropes and what that has done forth has led to an exotification and a commodification of our bodies you know a a dehumanizing of who we are as women you know many of the explorers back in the day were were not just working for their monarchs but they were in their minds working for god perpetuation of that of making it okay to brutalize other human groups So it's not just a, you know, coming in and being a savior. It's about really understanding how that piece of history is indeed connected to what we see today because of the historical trauma and the atrocities. I was in prayer for a full year because I knew it was gonna be like facing literal evil. It's evil, all of this, abuse, trafficking, destroying families, murder, it's evil. I knew that if I was not getting myself centered and grounded with my God, the Creator, my ale, I knew I was going to struggle and I still struggle and that's okay. Going back to prayer.
0: written podcast, getting real immersed in truth, intersecting hard conversations with the gospel. We seek and speak the truth about what's going on around us. I'm your host, Robrina Reddle. As an enrolled citizen of the Northern Cheyenne Tribe in Montana, Colette M. Yellowrobe, PhD, grew up on the Winnebago Reservation in Nebraska. She advocates for and implements concrete changes. Dr. Yellowrobe does this often in collaborative Projects such as co creator on research, teaching, and community projects. Her scholar activism is often devoted to, but not limited to, Native American education, epistemologies, anti racism pedagogies, and the missing and murdered indigenous women and girls global movement. Dr. Yellowrope says her life's journey is to actively engage the long standing systemic structures and to advance and support diversity, inclusivity, and equity. She says it is a great honor to serve in various leadership roles and policy advising to honor our past, present, and future Indigenous voices. Dr. Yellow Robe, continuous imagining of possibilities and commitment to center cultural practices for Indigenous peoples is what keeps her going. However, her great honor and privilege is to serve as a proud mother to two amazing sons, Chase and Mason. Perfectly thank you so much for joining me today, Dr. Yellow Robe. I really appreciate you taking the time to sit and have this conversation with me.
1: Yes, of course. Thank you, or Naish. It's a pleasure to be here. Very much appreciate it. And you can call me Colette. I love, I love my name. So please feel free to call me Colette.
0: Okay, thank you so much. I appreciate that.
1: So I wanted to talk to you
0: for two reasons. But first, what's your story, Colette?
1: Mm -hmm. Yes, thank you for asking me what my story is. There's, let me start by saying this. I believe that we all as humans, as, you know, sons and daughters of creator of God, or we say Ma'eo and Cheyenne, that we all are unique. We have our uniques and that's our story. We all have a story. So I'm very happy to share mine. I would say in a playful way, I'm just a girl from the res who decided to go for it. I just had the courage and I really bought into school, did well in school. And that was going to be my ticket off the res because I wanted to go see more is the best way I usually tell it. I wanted to go and see the world, make a difference devote my life to making change. I was always pretty activism oriented even as a youngster. I remember having some interesting conversations. I grew up in a Dutch Reformed church in Winnebago and I remember asking about at the time there they were a pretty big church in South Africa asking about things like apartheid in South Africa or glasnost with Russia, you know, the Berlin Wall was coming down, so I was pretty pretty outspoken growing up. That's a, that's been my spirit, I would say. That's always been my spirit. And another part of my story is growing up biracial on the Winnebago Indian Reservation was a really wonderful experience. It was hard at times too, but I like it. Taught me how to be very diplomatic at a young age because I didn't have a lot of family. Who? Because I wasn't Winnebago, if that makes sense. My tribe is Northern Cheyenne. And I had to learn how to kind of see amongst two or three different tribes, which I think taught me how to be, well, I know it has. It's taught me to be very diplomatic and very open and respectful of things like that. And being biracial, I was very sensitive to that as a young age too. So I've always been very pro-interracial. Couples, mm-hmm. interracial love, interracial, or love is love. You know, I'm very, very much a champion of that from a young age because the things I went through. So
0: mm-hmm.
1: so I'm more than just a professor, Robrina. You know, I have all this, you know, story in my background that I'm very proud of. And thanks for letting me share it. And I would say in connection to what we're talking about today, I am a survivor. I'm a sexual abuse and assault survivor. And I'm very open about that, very candid. And I'm also okay with, you know, everyone's on their own journey with that. That's okay too. And I think it's very important for me to share my story in order to destroy that culture of silence that is bred in with that kind of abuse or just the systematic, as we will talk about soon, systematic and institutional uh, barriers and structures that were put there on purpose. So Mm. that's me and I'm a mother. How could I not talk about my beautiful sons? (laughs) I have two beautiful multiracial sons. Very proud of them.
0: Yes. Yeah, that is you. You do have a very interesting story. When we met with coffee, I do like to, if I can, Mm -hmm. uh, when I have my guests, uh, if I can meet in person with them, I do. Sometimes I will just have a preliminary uh, Zoom call with them. But if I can meet face to face, I try to do so. And We met for coffee and we really clicked right away. We had a lot of similarities and we were both in a lot of the same kind of work as far as healing work. And uh, it's heavy uh, work. Mm-hmm. And I, too, am a sexual assault, sexual abuse survivor, which I have not really told much of my story. And I just came through a class that is helping me tell my story more. And um, as I have forgotten some or repressed some of my story for survival purposes, for those mm-hmm. who, of you who don't know, a lot of a lot of details of your life can be suppressed or forgotten because your body literally can't handle it. And so, anyway, but uh, now I'm coming into being able to uh, to tell those stories, and that brought me to want to talk about our topic today. And I know in some of your work, of what you do. Uh, that's why I reached out to you. Thank to Dr. Anitra uh, Warrior, who I uh-huh. interviewed her uh-huh. about uh, mental health in the Native American community and the work that she's doing. So thank you, Dr. Anitra, for getting us together.
1: Yes, and, thank you, Dr. Neitz. Absolutely, <laughs> she's a beautiful soul, golden soul.
0: Yes, she is. Uh-huh. Uh, but I want to talk to you for two reasons. One is it's a well-known fact that BIPOC missing women don't receive as much attention or media publicity as uh, our counterpart or as white women. And one instance is the Lauren Smithfields case where a Black woman who went on, she met a man on uh, Bumble. She went on a date with him. She ended up dead and that her death was not being investigated until six weeks after her death. And that was because the family and some celebrities raised a ruckus about it. And even the way the family was notified was uh, very insensitive and dismissive. And you all can look up that. There's uh, plenty of uh, articles on it now Lauren Smithfield's case. It's very heart wrenching. Mm-hmm. And also during the Gabby Pertino, Gabby was in an abusive relationship and her fiance, they believed that he had taken her life. and But that case became internationally known and she disappeared in the state of Wyoming. And according to insider.com, between 2011 and 2021, there were 700 710 indigenous women missing in that same state and did not get the same type of publicity. And then also because May 5th is national day of awareness for missing and murdered native uh, women and girls. And that's why I wanted to have this conversation to talk about specifically uh, native uh, American women that has been, this has been happening to them and they call this a silent genocide And so I wanted you to speak a little bit. Let's start with the history of what we'll refer to as MMIW. I also like the way you refer to not just um, missing and murdered Native women or Indigenous women, you call them relatives. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. I really appreciate that. So why don't you speak a little bit on the history of when you believe this actually began?
1: Okay, sure. Of course. Absolutely. And, you know, Rabrina, I appreciate you bringing up the our our relatives in general, you know, which would be consistent with a lot of tribal beliefs and worldviews that, you know, we, we, our relatives are our relatives that's going to span across tribes, nations, and we'll quote unquote, what became races and um, ethnic groups in this country, the social construction of it. So I'm very adamant about saying that. So thank you for bringing our, the stories for the young women you've already mentioned, because that's important. One thing I want to start with to everybody who's listening to this is if it's happening to me and my people, it's happening to you. Mm-hmm. And we have to remember that and stick together with that. However, the the grim reality is with Native American or Indigenous women of what we call Turtle Island or North America, we are the highest group. We are indeed targeted and have the highest rates of abuse and violence and, of course, missing and murdered cases. When you look at our group in proportion to how many we are in the population, the numbers are staggering, if you look at it like that. This may come off a little flippant. I don't mean it to to everybody. When they asked me this question of when did MMIW begin, and it was the day Columbus set foot, the day they landed, that's when Indigenous women were being targeted, absolutely, from day one. Back in those times, the way Columbus looked at it, and there's a lot of um, really amazing, phenomenal MMIW activists and scholars who talk about this a lot. Sarah Deer, for example, Mary Catherine Nagel, so many come to mind. They looked at us as a, how do I want to say this, as wild and to be tamed. So they were going to conquer our body, much Mm -hmm. like they were conquering the land, if you will, you know, that whole discovery, exploration notion So Native women or Indigenous, you know, obviously the Caribbean tribes, Caribbean peoples, they were being put, what became the Caribbean, I should say. They became put into that. They were to be conquered. Although many of our traditional societies were egalitarian or had more equity, gender equity, of course, orientation as well. So that's when it started. In this country, the movement we were... We were following in the step stepfoots of our courageous relatives to the north in Canada. So MMIW was born out of Canada, if you will. That's who, who started this really concerted global advocacy because it's a transnational global movement now, MMIW. Hmm. So we can thank them for that.
0: How did they, what were the steps that they took to bring awareness uh, for oh, yeah. the voices or the victims with these relatives our sisters are
1: it took a website if people are interested in that because you know I, I won't be able to do them justice of course would be the the missing and murder then they had a national inquiry so the webs one website you could go look into or do a keyword search is national inquiry into mmiwg in canada and that'll bring up a lot of the history there It took years and years of advocacy and fighting against the injustice and how, again, same cases were not being investigated. It took, actually, one thing that I like to point out to people is uh, their artists were very instrumental as well. So it was the grassroots activists, so mothers, grandmothers, daughters, aunts, women relatives, And then their artists did a significant job, too, in promoting the movement and getting awareness and shedding light on what was really going on.
0: Mm. And when you and I were talking, you were saying that because I I looked at a map and they were talking about the states that have the highest. Yeah.
1: Yeah.
0: uh, Missing indigenous uh, women and girls.
1: Yes. Yes. So. In the United States, some more of the history there, that's a great segue. We celebrate, we recognize May 5th as, I'm going to my notes, I can give you pretty significant numbers here. So, May 5th has been set aside as National MMIW Day, MMIWG Day, and May 5th, 1992. They picked that date because that's the birth date of Miss Miss Harris, she was born actually in my reservation's up in Montana, in Muddy Cluster, it's right by my district in Busby. And she was tragically murdered there. She passed away in that area, and that's why we came up with that date. You've probably heard of other legislation that's been connected to MMIW activism, like VAWA. That was a big reauthorization that just happened. Thanks to Deb Holland, Charisse Davids, of course, Ruth Buffalo's advocacy in North Dakota. And then in our state of Nebraska, we, we passed MMIW legislation with LB-154 a couple years ago. Mm. So when it comes to time, this is a more recent modern phenomenon of legislation being done. And when I mean recent modern, I mean the last decade mm. or five years in some cases. So not all states have this type of legislation yet.
0: Yes. And statistically, it says that Indigenous women and girls are murdered 10 times higher than all other ethnicities and that uh, murder is the third leading cause of death for Indigenous women. And so they have to do they had to do something because that is It's just staggering numbers when you look at it. And I was looking at the one for the States, because I think I said that because we're in Nebraska, are we number seven?
1: Yeah. I think you're referring to the, the really remarkable work that was done with the national report from urban Indian health, I think is what or urban Indian health with urban Indian health Institute. I think you're referring to that. And I will pull that data up for you real quick. In Nebraska, this report is actually what got the attention of some of our, not just the world, but also our local local policy members in the state of Nebraska. Yes. So Omaha, Nebraska is actually number seven of top 10 cities
0: in mm-hmm. the United States. Mm-hmm. And... Yeah, and looks like New Mexico is first. I think I'm pulling up the same website. I, I have the National Indian Council. Is that the one you have, the NCOA? Oh, NCAI,
1: yes. That's another recent report. Excellent report. Yes. Yes, ma'am. Yeah.
0: Yeah. So, yeah. So there's the top 10 states. I see New Mexico, Washington, Arizona, Alaska, Montana, California nebraska utah minnesota and oklahoma
1: mm-hmm. we're still in the top yes, yes. and then city you, and you. state and that and the significant significant thing about that too is it's two separate sources as well
0: yes and i will put all the sources that we are discussing today and of ways to learn and understand more i'll put in the show notes
1: yes of course yes absolutely so, and another significant work that's being done is with Sovereign Bodies Institute. They're doing significant work as well with that, and they have excellent sources as well. So,
0: if someone, because I put in the show notes just in case someone wants um, to do more investigation on their own,
1: and Absolutely. just to know exactly
0: what we're talking about, they can look it up and see it for themselves. Yes. So, so we were talking about. You mentioned how all this legislation is new. Mm -hmm. So within the past decade or so. Okay. So what there still are, we know there were some systemic barriers and there still are systemic barriers. And I'm thinking people don't understand systems. What happens when systems are in place to keep truth from coming to the surface? You know, a lot of people look at things as, oh, this, uh, this is an individual basis. But as you stated before, what happens to you happens to us. It's all interconnected. And mm-hmm. what a lot of people don't understand is that it, it, it's, a, it's on a continuum. So it can go past to the next generation and the next generation. It can be passed to the next person, the next ethnicity, you know. And so anything that's happening to someone else, it should still concern us.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So what are the systemic uh, barriers which contribute to the lack of awareness and that make it difficult to find the lost relatives?
1: Okay. So you've already addressed one Miss Robrina, and that would be there is still a lot of systemic racism and oppression in journalism and reporting that's being done and we are which is subject to you know colorism and basically valuing um, <sighs> not valuing brown and black lives, Mm -hmm. if that makes sense, you Mm -hmm. know, and that's been consistent since I was a child. That is an ongoing, we're going into decades now of certain groups are privileged or getting the awareness out there. So that's the number one problem. Number two would be the ways that the laws and people's lack of understanding for tribal sovereignty, what that means Mm -hmm. Tribes, like I'm an enrolled citizen of my tribal nation, so I, we have a sovereign political legal status. We aren't just a racial, ethnic, cultural group. We actually have a legal and political identity in this country, so that requires that state, local, federal governments and tribal governments must all talk to one another. And, for example, in this state that I'm residing in, Nebraska, they had to pass legislation in order to make that an easier process so that this data can be collected and collected accurately and communicated across um, lines. And third, there's also been a tendency to erase Native American women. First of all, we're erasing Native Americans in general, Indigenous people, but we have particularly silenced deliberately the voices of Native American women, Indigenous women, to reinforce, you know, the tropes. I'm sure you've seen these over the years, the romantic trope, or you look at the way Sakakawea or Pocahontas or whatever, we were supposed to embody this mythical fictionalized version of what a Native woman is, and what that has done, forth has led to an exotification and a commodification of our bodies, you know, a a dehumanizing of who we are as women. You know, if you don't value us as a a human, as we were almost considered inanimate objects, we're objectified Mm -hmm. in society. And then more modern, when we started moving on to reservations, of course, which was systematic and deliberate, that creates a lot of isolation. So in many areas, it's very rural, you know, where you may have to use satellite phones, for example, in certain areas. And it's not like, you know, it's it's not like TV. So people have a very Hollywood commodification version of what life is like. And if you're talking about rural area, that's not the same lifestyle. It's not just a call 911 and someone's going to react, mm-hmm. you know where some states have maybe one or two federal investigators working on these cases. Maybe.
0: Yeah. You know, you said the dehumanization. One Mm -hmm. thing I talk about a lot on this podcast is Imago Dei, how we are all made in the image of God. And when you view people that way, it changes how you see them. You actually do see them, Instead of as whatever this ethnicity is, or I disagree with this person's politics, or I don't believe in what this person believes in. But if you truly see a person made in the image of God, which God has called us to do, Uh Uh that completely changes how you interact with a person, with a people group. You know, mm-hmm. it, it's, it becomes very much so more of, like you said, relative. This is my family. If God made me, God made them, mm-hmm. you know, and it just mm-hmm. it's, a, it's just a different way of seeing. Something you just mentioned, though, I wanted to go back to when you talked about. I want to go back how for people who don't understand when you talked about how the laws have to be. How they have to be changed and how you are a sovereign nation because you are a citizen of your particular Mm -hmm. tribe. Mm -hmm. So when you are bringing up the issue and you're saying, hey, this is a serious problem and we need something or we need someone to pay attention to this. So how does it work within your nation to get to uh, a congressman or a senator? to actually say, Hey, yeah, you know what? I think we do need some legislation on this.
1: Okay. So I can speak to a couple of direct experiences and then what I've been able to be, in an honor to learn from my, from my sisters, my fellow mostly women in the cause. It's, it's a bona fide grassroots activism. Mm. It is the, It is the heart of the nation. There's a famous saying in my tribe, a nation is is not conquered until the hearts of the women are on the ground. It is the Mm -hmm. mothers, grandmothers, aunties, or, or, you know, true spirit, people who identify as a woman. It is, they are doing the work. They Mm -hmm. are doing the work. They were the ones consistently, not just recently, decades ago, talking to representatives, talking to law enforcement. This has been going on a long time. So in some ways, we stand on the shoulders of our ancestors and their prayers Mm. to even see some of this legislation being ratified today.
0: Mm.
1: You know, that could have been a prayer being said 100 years ago. You know, this is we always have to keep in mind that this is way bigger than us, you know. There's no room for ego in the movement, I guess. So with MMIW, if I don't say it now, I may forget. Kind of like I said, with Native education, this is everyone's problem. It's all hands on deck. It is not, it can't just be the group being harmed mm-hmm. doing the advocacy. It's a human rights issue. And we have to blow people's eyes wide open to that. You know? I
0: agree. Yes.
1: Like uh, you were saying, it's happening to African-American women, again, outrageously high numbers, African-American women being targeted, girls, no cold cases not being investigated. And now we're actually seeing more boys of color, Native American boys, African-American boys being targeted as well for trafficking and other unfortunately connected issues. Mm. So just just this one cause. So I, I, I want to stress this is interrelated. We are interconnected.
0: So I I do like to focus on the church because sometimes I don't think the church wants to acknowledge or see certain things that are happening. Like, like there's certain, oh, what is the word? Certain causes that they kind of stick to. But I am interested in, I'm not saying all churches, <laughs> but there are some. Hashtag disclaimer,
1: Yes, mm-hmm. yes.
0: But for churches who are who are there might be people who are saying, oh, my goodness, I, I had no idea. And now that I'm aware, I would like for our church to be educated on this. And so what can the church as a whole, the body of Christ do to to help support and bring in awareness to the issue of missing and murdered women and girls? Relatives, sisters, or what is or what can they do to assist in preventing and in help finding some of our stolen sisters?
1: Okay, so I guess I would have to um, back it up. This can be, this isn't impossible. And yes, I'm aware that some churches or religious organizations, you know, there's not a tendency to run into to activism. However, I grew up with church mentors, spiritual advisors who were very more activist oriented. You know, if we look at certain causes, like civil rights comes to mind for our voting, you know, that, that is most certainly under the purview of activism. So, but when, let's focus specifically on the Native American Indigenous, it's probably going to require a lot of reckoning and reconciling of our his- histories. For example, I'm a scholar in Native American education, etc. cetera. The churches were, were complicit in the assimilation or in, at times the termination of Native American cultures. We saw that in the boarding school era. So there has to be a, a recognizing of that painful history Mm -hmm. and then an accountability to it. So it's not just a, you know, coming in and being a savior. It's about really understanding how that piece of history is indeed connected to what we see today because of the historical trauma and the atrocities Mm
0: -hmm. that were
1: committed. You know, Mm -hmm. many of the explorers back in the day were, were not just working for their monarchs, but they were in their minds, working for God, if you will. You know, there was very much a perpetuation of that, of making it okay to brutalize other human groups or obviously to to oppress us. So that would be my first big suggestion is we have to start talking about those things. And if you don't want to use sermon time, fine, but we can find ways, and I know there's churches who are trying to do this, that where we have to facilitate some of these conversations in different manners, different ways. You can host a film. You can do many things to, to get dialogue. Secondly, in order for healing to happen, we have to start talking about it so we can pray about it with one another. Mm. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. You know, some of us, I will, I will switch gears and go into survivor mode. When I first came out about my abuse, I remember just coming out of one state of paralysis into another, like, okay, well, what do I do now? And it was indeed a prayer ceremony that got me through the majority of those first stages of healing. And so this is an opportunity for us to come together as different creeds faiths if you will and unite under prayer Mm. and i believe jesus himself to be very radical in his own work that he did
0: you know yes so it's not necessarily looking at this as just an activism type of thing to get involved in but it is an actual humanity
1: Mm -hmm. issue
0: is really what it is and it sounds like what you're saying is that we need to which this has been a theme the past few years with the church acknowledging our sins repenting from those sins and reconciling to get to restoration it seems like that's just that's just the it's been the theme I've noticed for the past couple of years and I'm not sure why as Christians, a lot of us are so reluctant to repent on these types of issues. We talk about repentance all the time. And it is through repentance that we also get to know, get closer uh, to the Lord and know his love to be able to show his love to others.
1: Two two things to that. Again, I can use my own walk or my my own mother, who's a, she's a prayer warrior. Some people just have that gift. To them they just I would presume you do too Rorina by the beautiful prayer you offered in the beginning. I would say a couple of things come to mind. One, it's an arrogance when you are when you keep asking for forgiveness of the same sin over and it's a, it's an arrogance that you feel as though you cannot be absolved or cleansed
0: mm.
1: which becomes an irrational guilt or shame if you will and you'll be trapped in that cycle. Instead of truly thinking if God, Creator, Jesus, can liberate you of that sin. Mm-hmm. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. It's a very humans, we're we're more similar than you believe sometimes, right? Mm-hmm. And while I will keep saying, yes, Native American women, we have been actively targeting it and are actively targeted, I want people to understand. This is human behavior. We have these patterns with other groups, and it is about understanding we can change Mm. and letting go of the perceived power in our institutions, churches, schools, wherever that may be. So I guess my second piece of advice to that would be in my, the older I get, the The more I don't know, I believe Creator humbles me more and more every day. I remember the day with my own children when I had to completely allow God to take control. And it was the scariest thing I've ever done as a mother. Mm. So we have to be willing to forego whatever control we think we have and, be, and allow God to work amongst us mm-hmm. for the spirit, like we found out the other day when we first clicked. It's, this is much, much bigger than us. Mm. Yes. Okay. And I'm not saying that I'm still happy when I let God take control. I'm not saying I haven't backslid or doubted myself or been scared or fearful as a mother. But it was the most humbling, courageous thing, scariest thing I had to do as a mother. And yet I'm glad I did it because it taught me how so much more wisdom. I'm not sure if that made sense, Miss Robert. And I guess I'm I relating it <laughs> back to the story. You asked me, what's my story? That's part of my story. You know, I constantly try to reiterate things or iterate things for people in my story mm-hmm. because I know it's scary. You, this This is hard work. We have to stay in prayer. Before I got, if I can take the liberty, before I uh, I was sharing with Miss robina the other day we met for coffee, before I even stepped foot into the scholar activism or that community activism of MMIW, missing and murdered Indigenous women, I stayed in prayer for a year beforehand. I had heard, you know, I was at some of the pre-planning for legislation in our state with, you know, missing and murdered Native American women activism advocacy, and I was in prayer for a full year because I knew it was going to be like facing literal evil in the face. Mm -hmm. It's evil. All of this abuse, trafficking, destroying families, murder, abuse, it's evil. And I knew that if I was not getting myself centered and grounded with my God, with creator, Ma'el, I knew I was going to struggle and I still struggle and that's okay. Going back to prayer. So those would be the three things I suggest. More practical things too, you know, let's let me not be arrogant and assume people are not praying and doing the work or whatever. I would say, especially if people are out trying to walk in allyship, it's really important that you look at your own stuff. This work can be triggering. So really doing your own self-healing, self-care is really, it's it'll it'll get you a long way. This is not work for the lighthearted. You really have to take care of yourself in in it, if that makes sense. Mm -hmm. And then secondly, I've already suggested this, but I think churches should start hosting community conversations. Actually, one one of my suggestions is podcasts, like our wonderful hostess is doing. For us, thank you for setting that example. And I mean that with all due respect and from my heart. And then continuing to do work with like shelters or domestic violence. This is, these are connected issues going on. Co-occurring disorders, DV, supporting our families. If people are more savvy, they most certainly can write to their federal.
0: I'm going to put a list of ways that you can educate yourself more on this topic. And then also ways that you can bring awareness uh, awareness to this topic and there are also ways that you can support, whether it's a donation or any of the other ways that Dr. Yellow Robe listed. So she and I will get together a list and we'll definitely put them in the show notes. Well, I do want to thank you so much for sitting with me in conversation, Dr. Yellow Robe. I do hope that this was educational for some of uh, those of you who are already aware I hope this was just a reinforcement of what you know and that you heard some things that um, were encouraging you in your work and in your walk and yeah I just want to thank you again for all the work that you do.
1: Oh thank you Naish that's giant that's trying for thank you yes of course absolutely This was an honor. And, you know, I think we should really thank you, Ms. Robrina, future Dr. Robrina, one day. I'll put that into the universe for you, speak that. I really think it's important that you're doing this work and you're bringing together intercultural women across different groups. You know, I think that's critical as well to show light and cast light.
0: Remember, May 5th is the National Day of Awareness for Missing and Murdered Native Women and Girls. And like Mm -hmm. I said, we'll have some links in the show notes uh, for you to get more education and awareness about it. Mm -hmm. And hopefully, prayerfully, you can support an organization doing this work.
1: Thanks again, Colette.
0: I appreciate you.
1: Of course, you're welcome. Absolutely. Thank you, everyone.
0: If you enjoyed this episode, or if you enjoyed the podcast, don't forget to give Grit, Getting Real, Immersed in Truth, a five-star rating, follow and share. Getting Real, Immersed in Truth is written, produced, and edited by me, Rabrina Rettle. Original music by composer Michael Coffey of Handcrafted Studios. Connect with me on Instagram at Rabrina Rettle and check out my website, rubberinaretel.com also have another podcast on life audio mama take heart understanding your gen z girl it's designed to help mama be the compassionate gospel-centered and influential voice in her girl's life okay friends until next time keep your head up when getting real while immersed in truth